So this afternoon, with the exploration, it's an exploration of this Kalama discourse. This uh, discourse was uh, given uh, by the Buddha to the Kalama uh, people, and it is perhaps along with the four foundations of mindfulness, the turning of the wheel, which is the first discourse given in uh, Sarana, and this one, probably in the uh, traditions of uh, Asia, is regarded as one of the most profound statements that the Buddha ever made. And in the very best spirit of uh, this discourse, it shows itself as a real encouragement for questioning, for inquiry. And it seems to me that the, the Buddha is just reminding us again and again of how we are influenced by our perception, all the associations of thought, memory and view that go along with it. And as a result of this combination, through what information of person or uh, events that touch us, we then find ourselves giving authority to. And the discourse, I feel, in various ways, helps us to realise how impressionable we are as human beings with each other. It helps to show us, as well, that rather than living in our impressions and being so influenced, we've got to keep faith with certain kinds of priority and really be clear about what the priority is. And this whole discourse is a fundamental examination of what really matters and an encouragement to question the way that we are impressed about or with. And I, and uh, others too, of course, have and continue to find it very, very helpful because I notice in myself, and you may do it as well, how easily points of information come to us. We give authority to them and we may not ever really have examined where that authority has come from or our relationship to it. So what I'd like to do is to simply uh, go over the discourse uh, uh, with you and the essence of the discourse I would say <coughs> is to remind us not to grasp on to second hand knowledge and all the ways that we uh, so easily uh, uh, use it it's an encouragement to give real attention to our views and our standpoints and where they are coming from uh, within us and how much we notice in ourselves that when we hold to our standpoint we find ourselves in a polemic meaning in other words we have the view the other or others have the wrong view and this sets up a disparity uh, a conflict and a tension and then we can't hear 
another way or another view of the way of looking at things. And in the disparity, it, it sets up the tension there. And somehow or other, we've got to kind of dig within ourselves to a deeper level in which we are explaining and giving authority to our understanding and not engaging in conflict. And this discourse is a reminder uh, uh, of this. And the third aspect, which is also covered in the discourse, which we touched upon a little bit this morning, this morning, is how easily we engage in transference to authority, whether of the individual or of the organization, of the state, or of the religion, or of science, or whatever it might be. And when there's an unhealthy transference upon, in some way or other, it undermines ourself. When we project and build up upon others, in some way or other, we're not really paying the fullest of respect to ourselves. And this is a constant challenge for all of us, I feel, in our relationship to authority. So the discourse of the Buddha is being mindful and attentive to second-hand information, looking at our views, and do we make a polemic, a conflict out of it uh, with others? And thirdly, what's the consequences of naive transference upon authority? The discourse and I'll read it uh, um, to you with some commentary, and it says, The Kalamas came to the Buddha and said that various priests, well-educated people, religious teachers, yogis, elucidate, that's expand on their uh, teachings, and explain, that means explain, elucidate, explain their teachings, and at the same time, and very easily, also begin to disparage, to put down others. And of course this tension and conflict is going on in the whole spiritual world and, and religious world and political world, etc. And then others who have been put down, they come to s- and meet with, in this case, the people from the Kalamas, and they are doing exactly the same. These teachings are true, these teachings are authentic, and then putting other people down, the other teachers there. And the result of this is that the Kalama people said, we experience perplexity and doubt. Who's speaking the truth, and who's false? And then he's asked, and the Buddha's asked, I speak about this. And then the Buddha said, it is fitting, it is appropriate for you to feel perplexed and in doubt um, because of this. And I know as a poor Dharma Walla, both in uh, East and West, in travellings, this difficulty consistently is going on. And in many times, whether it's a Dharma gathering, or it's in the retreats, or on the yachas, uh, etc. The students will come and they will say, Oh, Christopher, whatever, you say this. But then the Lama says this, and the Zen master says this, and the yoga teacher says that. 
or one of your teachers say this, or another teacher in your tradition says, uh, says that. And who am I to believe? Which, which view should I, should I follow? And when a person is uh, in doing that, which is all too human and common, there is, again, a transference and the placing of authority on various teachers and the view that's arising inside, well, perhaps one of them is right and one of them is wrong. Which one is better for myself than the other? Which would I identify with uh, than the other? Sometimes I say, to hell with all of us. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> because it's just this movement of the mind which is, as I say, directing the attention towards, making something of, and we have to somehow or other step back from all of that, see this displacement of the authority, and, as the Buddha said, in such situations, be um, a refuge unto oneself. Is that the right translation? Atahi atano nato. Be a light unto oneself. So if you or I, we notice this mind going out, comparing authority, not knowing who to accept or who not to accept. I think at such times, it's part of the instruction, to drop it. To come back and to see What's valid? What's my experience? Which the Buddha is also addressing. I'll talk about in a moment or two. He then begins to give this, as he loves to do, being the great groupie that he is, give the list of ten. And there can't be any teachings on this planet <laughs> where we get so many groups in. Talk about living in the box. <laughs> so... There's this group of ten which he uh, then begins to explore and Jenny Wilkes, who I uh, referred to, um, checked out with the Pali because sometimes a particular Pali word has more than one meaning. Mm. Meaning. Well, I said? Meaning. <laughs> meaning, I <laughs> apologise. <laughs> I, I can tell you why I said the word meeting. A few months ago, you will have seen in the, if you get it, the Guy House, Christopher's a newsletter, e-newsletter, the uh, uh, exploration that Hans and I engaged in, which was a looking at the Advaita tradition and the kind of priorities and emphasis that it gives, and the Dharma, Buddhist, Buddha Dharma, tradition of the terms and the forms that I uh, connect with. And Hans sent me uh, an email um, giving some exploration and explanation of, I think, six essential kind of differences. Then we emailed back and forth. We did a little bit of uh, polishing to, uh, together, a little bit of uh, refinement uh, together and then put it out in the uh, uh, e-newsletter. I noticed, particularly having just come back from India ten days ago, the degree of appreciation, both from my Dharma friends in India and my Advaita friends uh, as well, 
because there's a rather a large network of Advaita, non-dual teachers and Dharma students who are living in Turavanamalai, where there's a lot of discussion going on, understandably enough, between relative truth, which you and I look at and look into in all the ways that we do, and the ultimate truth, which you and I also look into and explore uh, together. And some of the dialogue that is going on, when it gets to holding and clinging, it then reaches fragmentation. And the fragmentation or the division that gets set up is the dear beloved Advaitins cling, God bless them, to ultimate truth. The Dharma students and Wallers start clinging to practice. And between the two, there's a fragmentation and a division. When there's an exploration together without the clinging, I find for myself, and I'm sure others do too, it's much easier to listen to, and it's much easier then to, to see, yes, there are differences, they can be explored, and there are common features as well of inquiry, obviously, and other aspects there. And when sometimes some teachers take the view, oh, the Buddha only taught relative things, they're com- talking complete uh, nonsense, and when sometimes people are saying that Advaita teachings are only teaching ultimate and not making reference to a relative, also not true uh, either. And I thought in the spirit of this, and this should think what the spirit of the Kalama Sutra, using it, and this is where the word meeting came out of that, that Jaya, who's one of our wonderful, wonderful teachers, resident in uh, India, she and other friends are teaching in Turuvanamalai, which is the kind of what Budgaya is to the uh, Buddha Wallers, then Turuvanamalai is to the Advaitins. You see, one's in the north and one's in the south. We're closer to the Himalayas. <laughs> uh, uh, very bad joke, sorry. And, and so I had suggested that possibly, instead of the teachers saying, oh, this teacher says this, this teacher says this, this Christopher teacher says this, etc. Why not, in January of next year, some of the Advaita teachers and moi meet together <laughs> and we just have some dialogue together on non-duality and duality and let the students come and listen to the teachers. So, since there's quite a flow, if you want to look at an interesting website, look at www.satsanginindia.something or other, I can't remember, but it's out there, .org, .new, or whatever it might be. And some of the students, when the word got round of some of the Advaita teachers, said, oh, yes, they think their teacher would go, and others said, oh, their teacher would never go, uh, etc. But if there's a little bit of skillful pressure, <laughs> it might be possible to have some exploration. So the teachers, instead of talking away from each other, actually meeting and talking together. Just as we explored with Pia when she very kindly came a few uh, months ago. And I think more immediate dialogue is much more effective than us talking about others who are not present and able to speak for themselves. 
all of this was a tradition of India. Unfortunately, the contemporary tradition tends to be rather fragmented. In the old tradition, I, mean, I, I think it was brilliant, but in the old tradition, the teachers would have a dialogue and debate. And if the students felt that one teacher genuinely had more insight and more wisdom and more understanding, those students and their teacher became the students of that teacher. Now, that would put a debate on a bit of an edge, wouldn't it? So there's you know, well-known stories with, uh, I think, Kasapa. He had you know, 200 students. He had a dialogue with the Buddha. He even he wanted to test the Buddha's equanimity. So, uh, in Budgaya, just outside, the, on the edge of Budgaya, he gave the Buddha a room, remember there's no electricity in those days, and left him in a room for the night with a cobra, just to see how his equanimity was, if he could sit with the sensations, <laughs> uh, etc. Then they had a dialogue together, and then out of the dialogue, in, um, there in front of the all Buddha students, and Kasapa students, wow, Buddha has this incredible wisdom, and then, then Kasapa became the student of. So the, there's a long tradition of this. Unfortunately, things are not the same today. But at least we may find ways to get some... Uh, dialogue and understanding and connectedness and meeting going on. I think it's critical because of the number of cults, sects, divisions, uh, misunderstandings of what different teachers, teachers, students are saying with each other. So the Buddha says, it's understanding that you have doubt. It's understandable that you are perplexed. And then he uh, gives these ten areas there. One of them is of, the translation is, of repeated oral transmission. What that means in, in various, various ways, that sometimes things are going down from one tradition to the next, much value is placed on this, and it's given authority. So the teacher said, I'm not doing this for myself, I'm not getting this you know, for myself, I didn't make this up, this was given to me. This teaching, this method, this te technique, this form, this was given to me by my teacher, and my teacher got it from his, normally, teacher, who got it from his. And the student says, wow. I know of one of the Zen traditions, as an example, which lists the 55 previous generations of Zen masters. Every name has been kept for 55 generations. It's impressive. But what's it got to do with liberation? <laughs> it's impressive. But is it so impressive we say, wow! Therefore it must be really authentic. Simply because of one piece of information. And the traditions of the East have given a lot of import and significance to this. But also oral transmission means what we hear by report. So sometimes you and I meet somebody and the person says, with enthusiasm and passion and some insight and some experience and some waiting, oh, you really have to go and sit with you really have to go and see. It'd be a rare week I don't get an email from somebody 
telling me about somebody who's wonderful. <laughs> and I'm sure they are. I could spend my entire life travelling around, going to all these, see the, all these various teachers that my dear friends keep telling me I really should go and listen to. Uh, etc. Et I, I tend to tend send other people to do the job. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so sometimes, <laughs> by oral transmission, we give authority. Sometimes, by a report. And it may be that, this is I think rather important in all of this, something has meaning when it comes together in the particular moment and time. Very important dependent arising here. What I mean by that, I might go, like, like a good example, a friend of mine went to see a Advaita teacher in Tiruvannamalai. The teacher hardly said anything that evening and the friend who went couldn't comprehend at the end of two hours anything about what the teaching was about. So one or two people came up to talk with the teacher. One was on the relationship and something else, etc. And so the friend who went to listen came away with the view I've got nothing to learn from this teacher I'm not sure what this teacher is really teaching he hardly said anything in two hours he had a couple of dialogues it seemed to be about love or relationship it seemed to be like a therapy etc is that fair on the teacher? is it fair on the student? is it there is a meeting in that time of dependent arising and out of it comes the view. And then out of that, that gets transmitted elsewhere. It's, you know, it's all too human, isn't it? Too human, unfortunately. The other is of lineage or tradition. And again, we tend to impart truth because of lineage and tradition. And the Buddha made a very sharp division, separation from this. Even though I would say I'm in the Dharma tradition, and I love the Dharma, and it's got a long history to it, and it's got its ups and downs, and I'm part of that tradition, and I'm part of its ups and downs as, uh, as well. The Buddha's division, oh sorry, the Buddha's questioning was, we do not, not, it's not giving authority to lineage and tradition simply because it has a long history. Not using it as the criteria. And in the Indian tradition, Hindu tradition, where it's strongly uh, emphasised, it meant that the Guru imparted the tradition to people, still doing this, and in the imparting of the tradition it was accepted because of its tradition. Whereas the Buddha's approach was not listening and accepting but seeing what is in accordance with my experience which, or help, which helps to wake me up and to see things clearly. Very different approach in the listening. A very different kind of attitude. Not listening to say, listening and remembering to confirm oneself as a Hindu or as a Buddhist or whatever. But listening to see what the experience is, to see what the wisdom that comes out of it. 
It's a fundamental difference between that kind of view and religion. Fundamental difference. Yeah, there is, because it's been widely stated, and um, in this uh, uh, wide, wide, uh, widely stated, you, you can take anything contemporary, and it gets widely stated, and it's accepted. The one that comes through my mind is in, is in science, and the Big Bang theory. I don't know if it's true. I don't know whether this is currently the contemporary view and opinion that science has based on its reasoning and its interpretation, etc. But when I look and read, it's given such a, an authority and it so, has been so widely stated in the last <coughs> generation, it's truth. It's become truth simply by the sheer numbers of people who adhere to it via science. I don't know. I can't remember that far. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Another, extraordinarily important, is what's written in books. Books. <laughs> I, th I think I may have, have told you, Achan Tamadaro, bless him. Well, I hope to go and see in uh, June, if the good man is still walking on the earth, has consistently criticized books. It always sticks in my mind in the monastery. He never wrote one. He had absolutely no time for them. He said, Books have done more, I don't agree with the view, I'm just saying the view. Of course I can't agree with the view, could I? He said, the books have done more damage to Dharma and practice than anything else. Because it made the shift, and the Buddha has given warnings himself about it as well, it made the shift of putting the Dharma into the field of concepts and mentality and construction. And, it's, and because it has such a powerful appeal for the mind, intellectual appeal uh, for the mind, of course it just feeds all of us who use our mind and write a lot. And he just had no time for it. So just being in the monastery, one I remember, I can still picture it as I talk to you, sitting in my hut by candlelight at night, with my middle-length discourses, you know, reading it like some subversive terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> because he just had no time for it. And I never saw in the three years a monk with the courage to walk outside of his hut with a book in his hand. <laughs> that, that, he was that critical of them uh, uh, there. Others of, of us take, thank goodness, a slightly different view. And again, with books, and that means the whole wealth of religious, spiritual uh, literature, and like Han, um, 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 when, when I was just coming, not, when I was just coming in the um, uh, in the car with Paul uh, this morning, 
he has this uh, book out and um, on thus spoke the Buddha yeah. and very, some friends, German friends have expressed appreciation for his uh, read, the readability of the talk, uh, talks of the Buddha there but as someone said to uh, uh, Paul oh when did your book come out and Paul said oh last October and the person said oh it's not a new book then <laughs> I mean, when do you think of books that have been around for one, two thousand years? It's not a new book. That the turnover of the books is just breathtaking number. Always, it's not giving authority to the book. It is, can the words that we read touch a place inside of us which touch a point of truth which somehow gives us some more insight and understanding. So often in the tradition with the language one's constantly being told by meditation teachers like moi go beyond thought let go of your mind thoughts of distraction what really matters is outside the field of the mind outside the field of the brain etc. It's an unfair emphasis and it's an imbalance there because the field of language whether it's called thought or reflection or words on paper or listening can communicate something greater than itself and no thought no idea no mental construct also can communicate something greater than thought, etc. So the teachings have recognised the importance of discourse, but are we giving authority to certain books, scriptures and texts? If we are, we need to examine the relationship. Fifth, also, is it's it um, is uh, logical and um, uh, uh, reasonable. And again, teachings can appeal to this level. And I know just from my uh, good visits, regular visits to the uh, bookshops, and I, like some of you, ab absolutely uh, love uh, reading, and in the very... Uh, uh, or, or in the listening, what's logical and reasonable tends to be what appeals to what I already think already. Have you noticed? And so it's very logical and reasonable, which is basically saying, well, I think it is. So my mind arises, and I look for something which will, which will give support to the view that I already have. And that, therefore it's logical and reasonable. I have found my, my areas of reading at the moment have I've more or less given up on Anglo-American reading. I'm, I, I don't want to sound too uh, divisive here. Um, but the reading that I do is mostly coming out of your good neighbours, that is, out of France. And it's people like Alain Badiou and Lacan and Foucault, and Derrida, these people, if I understand 
because their writing is so unbelievably dense. You know, there's this famous Lacan, I think he had one sentence, which went on for three pages. <laughs> but in the questioning that's going on in it, it just shakes some views that I have. And it moves out of the scope of what I have assumed. And it's helping me, helping in a small way, to shed light a little bit in other, in, in other areas. And I think in, in that, it's just because it's logical and reasonable, doesn't mean to say it's insightful and enlightening. And I think some of these people, like the four that I just <coughs> mentioned, tend to challenge one's whole view. Like Badiou, he just start, he's, he questions the whole concept of human rights. I start reading what he says, well, what? But then I get an insight what he's, what, why he's doing it. How the concept of human rights is so much related to the kind of consumer culture that we live in as if we really know what we're talking about. And how there's such a blind spot in it. Boy, he starts questioning, I think, whoa. And get some understanding about what that movement is. So in other words, if it's logical and reasonable, Keep a little doubt. Going on then for drawing conclusions, because it seems to be, have been um, well uh, thought out. That means method and technique, especially in, in these kind of areas. Of acceptance and conviction through uh, a particular uh, theory. And the other, in the last two, it's the, um, the speaker or the teacher, and out of respect for the for the teacher. And these is an en- has enormous influence. Enormous influence. And I think many will come in, and I think particularly in this kind of role, we touched upon it this morning a little bit, we can find ourselves in some kind of position of authority, and a whole diversity of it, uh, in the uh, room here. Somebody comes to us, he or she has expectations on us because of our... Uh, authority have great uh, respect for us they may or may not know us the effect of that is what we say really makes an impact really makes an impact and I think this kind of um, dynamic in the engagement with those who are in authority can at times work well, one connects with the person, one has respect for the person, one feels the person, he or she knows what he or she is talking about, all of that. Yet, however, to actually from that draw the view that everything the person says and everything the person does is going to be crystal clear in every area, this is too much. This is too much to expect of a human being. I remember listening and going to satsang with... Oh God, I'm getting old. Anyway, in the mid-1970s... <laughs> Swami... Days go by. Anyway, this is, 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 is a lovely, lovely uh, teacher. 
Two of his students were Swami Dayananda and Swami uh, Patasati, who are, I must say, doing wonderful teachings uh, in uh, India. So I went to see the uh, teacher, stayed in his ashram for two or three months. And then one of the questions that arose in the, uh, the, the, the satsang is out of the Advaita Vedanta tradition was a political question. And the political question which arose was there were threats, verbal threats, on the border of China with India. And part of the motivation behind China taking over Tibet was that they would have closer to India if there was a problem. And the student of the Swami said asked the Swami do you think it's important that we have nuclear weapons and and continue to develop them because they had become in the mid 70s a nuclear power and the Swami said yes we must have nuclear weapons it's the only way that Bharat means the nation can defend itself against this threat from uh, China and, uh, and a possible threat from um, Pakistan because they had a war a year, a year or two ago. I, I was sitting there, Buddhist monk, may all beings live in peace and harmony. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> Etc. And it took a bit of energy afterwards because I was so caught in this to actually listen saw the wisdom that was being said afterwards because of one particular view which went totally against the grain. And I think it's this kind, and I still profoundly, obviously, disagree with the view there. But what what I'm, I'm saying is to expect a teacher in body, speech and mind to be consistently, absolutely clear Morning, noon and night. It's too much. It's too much to ask. Too much to ask of ourselves. We are sangha. We keep working on ourselves. We keep exploring. We keep looking and giving it, giving it attention to. But as the Buddha said, don't just accept because the teacher or the guru or the authority appears competent or just out of respect. The very respect without clarity becomes the blind spot. It becomes devotion. It becomes everything is okay. And one starts rationalising everything. So, so then the Buddha uh, went on. And then there's the encouragement then to see for, he says, when you know for yourselves those activities which uh, lead to harm and suffering, then abandon them. When you see and know for yourselves those activities which contribute to the ending of greed, hate and delusion, cultivate and uh, uh, develop that. So that the whole emphasis is on uh, realising that those activities which lead to one's true welfare one's true happiness there. 
And that, those activities which would be censured by the wise, would be criticised or concern expressed by uh, the wise, really be clear uh, about that. And to keep that um, as, the, as the primary uh, uh, focus. And when one has that as the primary focus, then naturally out of that emerges kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And then he gives, which is only two or three places, but it's important from the Buddhist context, a provisional view about rebirth. And the provision, he says it, if there is another world after we die, and our activities bear fruit, and these activities bear fruit, then, after we die, we will experience the fruit of these activities. If there is rebirth uh, there. And even if there isn't, he says, then the way that we live and how we are will keep bearing influence and impact and fruits as we go through this life in a whole variety of different, uh, different ways. And he says, the noble person person with noble consciousness, is one who is free from negativity, blame, without corruption, and pure in heart. And I think it's just a kind of shift that uh, uh, take, takes place in which the first four of the ten areas to look at and explore to our relationship to, the first floor is all about how we receive knowledge. So, oral transmission, the lineage or tra tradition, because it's been widely stated, or because it's written in books and scriptures. First of all, it's the questioning of how we receive knowledge. The second area, uh, that, no, that's five to eight, these are examples of misguided thinking, the use of reasoning, and giving great authority to that, from within or without. And the final two uh, examples are with relationship to individuals and kind of inappropriate reliance on authority. The exploration of all this just helps with awareness and vigilance. Quite did I think, my God, when I think of every major area, as I said to a friend of mine recently, this should be pinned up in every single classroom, mm -hmm. every university, every institution, every religion, mm -hmm. every science department, parliament. parliament, the whole lot, that this should be there. And it's explored and shared and looked at together. My gosh, it would change things. This is the, the spirit of it. May all beings live with awareness and insight and uh, realization. Good, enough, enough. <laughs> I went on a bit longer than I intended. <laughs>